the Almanes podcast, Reading the Middle East, where we take a deep dive with all the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about this complex and dynamic region. I'm your host, Gilles Kepel, professor at Sciences Po and author of a number of books and articles about Islam and the Middle East. This week, my guest is the renowned Egyptian novelist Ala El Aswani, author of numerous highly regarded novels, short stories and articles, including the award-winning Yaqubian Building, and most recently, The Republic of False Truths, released in English this year, which will be the subject of our conversation today. The Republic of False Truths is a fictionalized account of the Arab Spring uprising in Egypt with an array of characters from Egyptian society. Allah was a participant in the demonstrations at Tahrir Square, and his book provides a brilliant, if dispiriting, account of Egypt's Arab Spring. Hello, Dr. Allah. Hello, thank you. Thank you for the introduction, and thank you for the invitation, and I'm always happy to be with you, Professor Kipel. Alambique. Well, Dr. Ala, you were there at Tahrir Square in 2011. Before we got into the book and its vivid characters, what did you take from the demonstrations and the crowd that both surprised and dismayed? And how do you, in a general way, look back at those events which occurred now 10 years ago? Well, the 18 days of the revolution Uh, were the best days of my life. And uh, I think that anybody who joined this revolution would say the same thing. It was uh, simply too good to be true. And uh, during the 18 days, I had twice the idea that probably I was dreaming. Uh, I spoke in public thousands of times, but I, I spoke in public in uh, the Tahrir Square every night. The idea, the feeling you have when you, uh, when you talk to one million people, sometimes two million people, willing to die for freedom, it's quite different. It's very different. So uh, it The Egyptians I lived with in the Tahrir Square have nothing to do with the Egyptians I used to live with before the revolution. They are probably the same people, but something happened, and this something is great, unique, and accordingly, uh, I... I had the feeling while I left this experience that I'm gonna I'm gonna write a novel, and I needed time because, as you know, Professor Kepel, the difference between journalism and fiction. In journalism, you can write actuality, you can write on the very same day, but in fiction, you need a distance uh, in time and in feelings, and I had this distance, and I began writing the novel uh, five years after the revolution. Well, thank you, Dr. Ala. But uh, actually, in reading The Republic of False Truths, I was struck by your insistence on the role of the military top brass 
in the Egyptian revolution of 2011. Those people that actually, when you were there, you did not see, but they were behind the scenes, right? And uh, this military top brass is impersonated in your novel in one of your central characters, General Ahmed Alwani, with whom the novel opens and who is very carefully crafted throughout the pages. I got the feeling that you depict him and the symbol that he represents as, you know, as if he were someone who managed to manipulate most political, religious, media, social, and even, even militant actors from the very inception of the upheaval. Something that runs contrary to the common wisdom on the narrative or even on the legend of the Arab Scream and even to maybe the impression that you so vividly depicted that you had when you were there addressing the crowds. And as one gets deeper and deeper into your book, we increasingly feel that the young revolutionaries lived under the illusion that they were making history, but actually they were caught between, let's say, the, the hammer of the army and the anvil of a people, quote-unquote, on whose behalf they were demonstrating, though the people, and this is what you show page after page in your book, became indifferent if not hostile at the end. Would you say that this is how you see the situation in retrospect today, after you had worked on uh, your fictional book, as opposed to what you felt at the time? We learned many lessons. We, of course, uh, the the revolution, like any other revolution, uh, we make mistakes and we should learn from our mistakes. And I believe uh, a big mistake done by the revolution, the revolutionaries, is that we thought at some point that the Tahrir Square represents Egypt in full, all of the, the, the whole country. This is not true. You know, we were like 10 to 20% of the population and you have on the other side people who are defending the old regime. I gave them, I gave them ten percent, and you have in between a very dangerous mass. I call it the passive mass, and you know in Egypt we call them the sofa party because they Hezb uh, Kanaba. They they said on the sofa, and they watch TV, and they never join anything. So uh, what happened is the counter-revolution succeeded, unfortunately, to convince the sofa party uh, that the revolution is something very bad, and it shouldn't have happened. This happened before, as you know, in many revolutions. I take the the, the French Revolution as a model, and after 10 years in France, the situation was catastrophic. So this what happened. We should learn our lessons as revolutionaries, but I'm very optimistic because the future is on our side. The counter-revolution has everything. 
has everything, has weapons, has the media, has the army, has the police. And we have our dream of the revolution of justice and freedom. And we have our courage and our willing to sacrifice. But in the long run, I'm quite sure, to me, it goes without saying, we will overcome. That's why I'm optimistic. One small, one and another point about General Alwani. General Alwani is presenting, representing for me, not only the old regime, by, but the religious hypocrisy. We have a very peculiar practice of religion in Egypt. I, I learned when I was a kid, I learned Arabic and French on the very same day. And I learned, I, I am, uh, you know, a pupil, a student of the French culture and civilization. And we have Molière who presented a wonderful character, Tartuffe. Uh, of course, you don't need uh, to know who is Tartuffe, you're, you're teaching this. But we have a difference because Tartuffe was somebody who was pretending to be religious and at the same time doing bad things. Our problem in Egypt, and I would say in the Arab world, that we have tarchifs that believe in what they are doing. And there is a big difference. If you look behind the scenes that you uh, su uh, suggest we do, uh, one of the red threads of the Republic of False Truths is sex, something that Tartuffe was very much indulging to himself. The book actually opens with a, a very crude and Molière-esque way, uh, to some extent, depiction of General Alwani's intercourse with his wife, where he mixes pornography with religion. And just let me read a couple of lines for... Uh, from your novel so that people uh, know uh, what uh, you're talking about. So, you're right. Some might ask, how could a God-fearing Muslim like General Alwani watch pornographic films? Well, a foolish question that only ignoramuses or the malevolent could entertain. It is true that watching pornography is an act disapproved of by religion, but it is not considered a major sin like murder, fornication, or the consumption of alcohol. The true religion may allow, on occasion, the commission of an act that is disapproved of if it prevents the believer from committing a greater sin, in accordance with the legal principle that, quote-unquote, necessity permits the prohibited. So would you say, and following up on your Tartuffe metaphor, that your depiction of sexual relations in the Egypt of 2011 functions as a way as an analyzer or as a metaphor of the relations of power that are displayed to the extremes by political manipulation on the one hand and uh, that also are able to bring hope for a better future on the other hand. Yes, of course. This is not only uh, 2011. You 
Uh, absolutely right. The point is, if we stop thinking of the sexual relation as a taboo or just a physical pleasure, we will find a very rich human domain. Uh, people, anybody, uh, performs sex for many reasons. He or she would perform sex because he is scared, because he is looking for a mother, because he is trying to explore or to discover his partner for many reasons. And that's why the sexual, and I, I, I even prefer to call it the physical relation, has been a very rich domain in the world literature. I'm not the only writer who focused on the sexual relation as an indicator about the characters and the human attitudes. I did what all the Greek writers did, like Garcia Marquez, Isabella Yandy, Dostoevsky, many, 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 Balzac, many, many Greek writers. So, so I try to explain the human attitude, the human feelings through the description of the physical relation. You know, the, the Republic of False Truth uh, reminded me to quite an extent uh, the Jacobian building volume, that, uh, the masterpiece that made you so famous and that came out in 2002, if I remember. So I wonder to what extent this new novel, The Republic of False Truth, has in a way that kind of same virtue of example i.e. it encapsulates all the bitter lessons of a terrible situation where immense hopes were actually betrayed by so many. And if such is the case, could you tell us how you see in the light of this very novel a better future for Egypt and for the whole region after the lessons of the Arab Spring and its aftermath have been drawn from a distance and also through the very uh, special lenses of fiction? Well, um, uh, thank you very much, first. And second, of course, I believe that there is something uh, probably, most probably, uh, there is something in my, uh, this novel, in my latest novel, that could be useful for people to understand what happened in the in the Arab Spring. And as I said before, I'm really optimistic. I believe we will overcome. It takes time. We just need time. We had, we had, we were between, according to the CNN, we were between 10 and 20 million people. So uh, Egypt is 100 million people. But we are still there. The regime sent to prison thousands of people. But we're still there and we will never give up our dream because the revolution in the first place is a dream. And something happened in Egypt. 
even if it's not visible to the regime. Something happened. Egypt now is no more Egypt it used to be. And what happened is irreversible. No, we will never be the way we used to be. So I'm very optimistic about the future of Egypt. We don't have to forget that 60% of Egyptians under the, are under the age of 35. It means that in 10 years, 20 years, all the old guards of the corrupt regime will disappear and the young people will take over. Accordingly, the future is ours. Well, uh, yourself and uh, some in your family also now live in the United States, have, uh, have fled the Middle East. Under what conditions do you think that Middle East, a Middle East novelist like yourself, but there are many others also, a number of artists, for instance, could uh, come back to, uh, to the region? And uh, what kind of, of uh, future do you think you can deal with facing new challenges in this very peculiar period when we're talking, which came after the book was written, of course, which we saw recently, such as the return uh, of the Taliban to Kabul, for instance, precipitated by the U.S. pullout from the region and the growing disinterest of the West for what happens in the Middle East. Well, I, as, as soon as Mr. Sisi uh, came to power, 2014, officially, uh, he began, became the president. I was banned from writing. I was banned from any TV appearance. There was a terrible media campaign against me, accusing me, of course, the classic uh, accusations of being uh, sometimes they, they went too far. They accused me of being a CIA agent, uh, Mossad agent. And at the same time, they accused me of being an Iran, Iranian agent. Uh, and, and you know, Professor Kippel, that it doesn't work simply. You cannot be, <laughs> you cannot be an agent for Israel and Iran at the same time. So it was a kind of character assassination right uh, and then after that uh, they began to make troubles with my family they made a case against my daughter and she was sentenced to prison for no reason and uh, and that's uh, when I decided uh, to to quit to, to to flee Egypt but it's very simple for any writer I believe, I cannot live in a place where I cannot write what I want, you see? And this is a must for any writer. And I must say that I'm not praising Mubarak, of course, right? He was a terrible dictator too, but the version, we have been ruled by military dictatorship since 1952 with different versions. The version we have now is the worst, is the most terrible. So under Mubarak, I was allowed to write what I, what I want. And I believe 
that writing for any writer is like oxygen. So if somebody doesn't have oxygen, he cannot respire accordingly, he must leave. Uh, and this is the this is the most important thing for me. But what would be the conditions for you to come back? Would you say to come back for good is to write to be able to write whatever I want. You know, of course, I would love to if they uh, if if they will stop to make troubles with me and my family. I will I will be happy to go over there to spend two or three months. But to stay for good, I must be allowed to write what I want. No restrictions, no censorship, no punishment, no ban, nothing. Well, thank you very much for this very uh, illuminating uh, exchange between the two of us. We're going to keep it short because it's uh, the iron law of the podcast because people uh, turn off and I'm sure they won't. And I'm sure they will also go and rush to the bookstores to, to read your Republic of uh, False Truth, as you said in Arabic. Uh, Dr. Ala, thank you for this book and thank you for this interview. It's been my, my pleasure to, to host thank you, you uh, Professor as the very first guest on reading the Middle East, Mushel Aswani, Mushel Awalani. And uh, thank you, thank you all to, for uh, for listening to us. I'll be back in a few weeks with another one of the top authors and thought leaders of the Middle East. And uh, please sign us for Reading the Middle East in our All Al Monitor podcast on the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and also on Israel with Ben Caspit at your favorite podcast platform. Goodbye for Sasaida. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you like this podcast and care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's other audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts along with first-class reporting and analysis. 